Hello and good evening. Welcome to another 67 uh, from home uh, webinar with uh, Jasper Morris. I'm, uh, I'm very happy to actually be back in action and um, I'm very pleased to introduce uh, uh, Jasper Morris, uh, who is, uh, um, I think, in, in Bonn right now. Um, so welcome uh, to a great webinar, uh, Jasper. Uh, I'm afraid Ronan had some technical issues, so uh, I'm afraid I, I had to introduce you. Um, so, um, can you hear us? Jasper? Yes, indeed yes. I can. Hello, Terry. How are you? Nice to very see well. you. Very well. I'm very well. After very a good gap. To see you. Yeah. Welcome back. I'm just struggling to get my, oh, that's all right. Get the cork out of the bottle. Uh, great. Now, unfortunately, um, uh, Ronan's got the, the maps and a couple of pictures. So, I don't know I see. whether we can uh, share them. I might be able to dig them up myself. Um, I will just... Uh, have a little go at that while we while we chat. Hope everybody can see me. Uh, welcome everybody, and uh, I hope this is going to be a, a nice, fun evening. Great. Um, we have served the lineup of wines on the chat for everyone to see. Um, right. And uh, I will double check, of course, with Ronan. If you have some issues with the maps, uh, I will try, of course, to find them and serve them for you. Okay. Uh, what I've got in theory is uh, I shall have got. Uh, two maps, one of which is um, the general map of Chevrolet-Chambertin um, uh, from my book, and the other of which is, I'm just going to try and get that on my screen now, there we go, and the other of which is an individual map of Clodagh Bears with various different people's holdings. So uh, I'm going to see if I can make the shared screen work. Boing, I believe I can. How about that? Um, I hope that you can all see that. Yeah. Can you just see the map or can you see all? Absolutely. That looks very good. Yes. That's the Pretty one good. I have here as well. I have oh, good. You've got it too. Yes, it's the one from inside Burgundy. Um, right. So, Chambertin Clodebez. Um, this is number two in our series of top Grand Cru's, where we're going to look at uh, six of the best producers thereof. Uh, so, we've done Romain Saint-Vivant. We've got Bonmar lined up and we will have uh, others more probably into next year. And as I mentioned before, we're going to try and alternate these sort of super expensive tastings with rather more affordable ones. So uh, it's the usual style of map with green indicating the village vineyards, the sort of salmon pink orange color uh, indicating the premier cruise, and then the light purple of the Grand Cruise. And here they all are, uh, one after the other. Um, what I now need to check is, yes, I can annotate. Um, so, <coughs> Chambertin and Claude Bears are the two biggest of the big um, So, <coughs> they, the, it can be Chambertin Claude Bears is allowed to call itself Chambertin uh, if it wishes to. Only very rarely do people do that. These days, nobody would do that if they only had Clodagh Bears. They would, they would take the trouble to label it as Clodagh Bears, as far as I know. I think that's right. And um, however, there are a couple of people who have got only a tiny amount of Clodagh Bears and a bit of Chambertin, and so they may blend them together. Uh, in a second, I'll sort of run down the list of who's got what, and then we can see what's happening. I've actually chosen uh, six of the seven largest producers I thought was the best way to do the decision making as to what we're going to have tonight. 
but I will run through the others as well. Oddly enough, Clodebez, um, even though it appears to be a, a sort of a sidekick of Chambata, is the older vineyard. We know that the land um, was given to the abbey at Bez as long ago as 630. So what is that? That's um, nearly 1400 years ago. Birthday party due in 10 years time. And very shortly after that, um, I think maybe not till 16, uh, 640, uh, they had planted it all up and walled it and made a classical clay. And we don't get any mention of Chambertin as a name until the 13th century. And uh, by that time, in fact, the Abbey of Bez had already uh, had to set up. Um, they, for whatever reason, they probably weren't running their affairs well enough. And it went to the chapter of the Diocese of Longres um, and they took it on, but they also didn't look after the vineyard nearly as well as they ought to have looked after it, um, to the extent that um, by the uh, early 17th century, the walls which had made the clay had started to fall in. Um, it wasn't all vineyard, bushes had sort of invaded the place, scrubland, poor plants, and so on and so forth. And they rather gave up on the job and they leased it to a lawyer in Dijon, who restored the walls, put the vineyard back into uh, good order. Um, this was in the middle of the 17th century. Uh, and um, after that point, the church had pretty much uh, lost control. But people stopped bothering with the name Claude de Bez. They really just used the Chambertin name uh, around about now. Um, and uh, occasional references pop up from time to time, but mainly Chambertin. So it wasn't until um, the uh, appellation uh, came along in 1937 uh, that, um, oops, your pardon if anything's going on. Read my messages, I hope not. Ah, sorry about that. Um, uh, it wasn't until appellation came along that Shumtang Clay de Bears really got itself back on the map. There's not that much difference between the two vineyards. Uh, you can see there, I will just actually um, uh, remove um, my bits and pieces so you can see them more clearly. So Chambertin and Chambertin Clos Bears, they're a similar size, they are similar aspect, both of them predominantly, if not almost completely east facing. Both of them mid to upper slope, not, not a very steep slope at all. They're sort of between 270 and 300, they just touch the 300 meter bar. Um, and you know, it ain't that obvious as you drive along that route des Grand Cru at the foot of them. It's not that obvious uh, that there is a big difference between the two. And for uh, both of them, almost all the vineyards are going up and down the slope up to the forest above. Well, Chambertin has got a forest above, but Clé de Bez has largely got the little vineyard, Premier Cru Vineyard of Bel Air above it. Uh, that could possibly make a difference. Uh, you may also see that, um, let's find something to, here, I put the stars, you can see what the contour lines do, and that's called the Com Grisar, and that is actually bringing some slightly cooler air down over Latricia, Chambertin, Masuria, and parts of Chambertin, uh, which you don't have that for Clos de Bears, and you don't have quite as much forest so, so close. Um, like all vineyards in Burgundy, what you see from the map and your first impression 
uh, is that the slope just runs from the top of the hill down towards the, the road and the flatland at the bottom. But obviously, like many other vineyards, they do slightly wave side to side. To come out of Chambata, the land lifts up a little bit into Clodebez, so those, the southern end of Clodebez has a very slight south exposure as well as east. And then um, as you go towards Mezzi Chambata, it drops down a little bit, so the northern end has a very slight nor northern exposure as well as east. So um, uh, those are the, the key uh, things between the two. Uh, there'll be some very slight soil difference, but broadly speaking, from the top of the vineyard down to the bottom, you get some very hard, uh, called calcaire de, de, de Prima, a really um, uh, fierce hard limestone at the very top. You then have a little bit of limestone mixed with clay. Uh, these are from the Bathonian era, and then it moves to the Bajosian era, and you have, first of all, um, the uh, Austria, um, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, um, it's the Mana Austria Accuminata. So you get a more of a white milestone with little bits of oyster shell in it. And then below that, you get the crinoidal limestone, which again has got uh, fishy bits in it, fossils of what looks like um, lilies, but in fact, they were, uh, they were uh, marine animal life rather than uh, vegetal life at the time. Doesn't seem to matter very much. Almost everybody's slices go all the way up and down. Uh, and no one has really been able to point out that there's a significant difference depending on these little bits of uh, geology. So um, I'm going to lose this slide if I know how to, um, and try and share with a, another one. Um, I may just have to, I'm going to have to stop the share and start the share again. Uh, how are you all doing? I've, what I'm sharing, I can't actually. Um, see the chat, so I will need to catch up on that. And I'm going to pour my first one into a glass as well. Um, so I see some of you, as always, have got the samples and, and, and some of you haven't. Um, just looking now for my list of who's got what. And I'm going to have another go at sharing my screen. Something I'm not particularly gifted at, but let's try that. Um, could you just let me know? Uh, I hope that you can. Uh, can you see that? Is it big enough? Probably not. Uh, but it'll only really matter when we start looking at where individual people's holdings are. Um, so I'm just going to uh, look on the chat. You can see. That's good to know. Uh, and it's clear enough for most of you, like a little bit bigger. Uh, but I, that I think is going to be beyond my own technical controls. So we'll score one for Ronan uh, here, because, oh, oh, hang on. No, have to stop the share. Try and make it bigger, and then I will bring it back to you in half a second. There we have it again. But I rather. All I'm getting when I click on the edit button that should make it larger is I'm just getting a change to my microphone. So that's not working. I apologize for that. On we go. Um, it is bigger now. Good, good, good. I've done something right for a change. Oh, dear. I've done something wrong for a change. 
Back we go. All right, so our different owners, it's 15.4 hectares in all. We start at the bottom, uh, Drew and I have 12 hours, so that would be three ouvres or enough for a barrel and a half. And uh, you not normally see it declared as a domain bottling because in fact, what they do is they also buy in some um, grapes or swap some grapes with Pierre Demois. And so uh, they are able to make a bigger cuvee, which is partly their own and partly purchased grapes. Next up is Jacques Prieur, who in fact, you often don't declare it. They don't have the best holding and a very small amount. So I don't think it normally comes out as a Clos de Bears. Third up is Domaine Perizo, who you won't see because they don't bottle it themselves, but it's, it's one of the um, uh, negotiation sources. And then just a tiny bit more than that, 0.20, you have Domaine Raffe, uh, who do make it themselves, uh, currently Gérard Raffe. Next up, going upwards, is Domaine Dujac, but they blend it with uh, their small holding of Chambertin. Uh, in any case, it belongs to somebody else. Uh, and, and, and they have not, in general, put it on the market. Um, I know there are various discussions going on there, so that's something which they keep back, and maybe a few lucky, lucky customers are allowed some, but you won't see it in general in the marketplace. Domaine Durocher has 0.25, a quarter of a hectare, it may not seem like much, but given what they have, a lot of their other vineyards, like their Griot Chambertin, and they've discussed, they haven't even got enough to make half a barrel, um, 0.25 of a hectare is relative riches. So, so that's a terrific wine. Next up after that with a third of a hectare is Domaine Riborso, who for me have been one of the catastrophic underperformers. Recently, a majority share, 51%, I think has been bought by Mr. Martin Wieg or his company, he of Wieg Telecom, and also of um, properties in Bordeaux and I think elsewhere on the wine front. Um, so I'm waiting to see what happens. Uh, I think the, uh, the Sorel family who had been making the wine before are still involved. I haven't yet been to taste, I'm about to ask to go and taste the 2019s, so no news on that. After that, we begin to get to uh, uh, some better known names on the marketplace for Clodagh Bears. We have Groffier with 0.41. Uh, these are ancient vines. Um, uh, 1912, I think they come from. Certainly, um, uh, the late Robert Groffier remembered the, the family getting them when he was a very young man, uh, and they already had a bit of age then. Uh, so that can be a magnificent cuvee. Uh, then we have Domaine Bar, B-A-R-T. They are cousins of the Clare family. So uh, I assume, I'm not sure exactly where their holding is, but I think it probably uh, sits next door to um, Bruno Clare's. I think we have a small problem that with the bigger size of the map, I think we lose a couple of holdings. So I'll just make it a touch smaller. Um, Shadow have a decent holding, 0.42. Uh, they're Clos de Bears. Then we have somebody called Zibetti, 0.46, but Zibetti mostly sell um, through negotiations. Uh, and then we get into the, the top seven names, one of whom, Priore Roch. Uh, I don't have uh, very expensive and not easily found. So we've got the other six of the top seven. And we're starting with the 0 0.60 um, hectares that belong to um, uh, Domaine Pierre Gelin. And uh, I can find, let me just see if I can learn how to annotate this. Ah. 
Someone's saying there's a sound problems, but you can hear me. Um, somebody just make a sign that you can hear me. I do hope you can. You can hear. Good, 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 good. Okay, the rest of you don't need to, <laughs> need to bother. That message may have been aimed at somebody slightly different. Right, now I need to try to get this exactly right, but I believe that this holding here, which I've given the stars to, uh, that should be uh, the holding of Pierre Jelin, um, uh, or at least uh, part of it, because I think that they also have, can I hide the chat so you can't see it, uh, this one here, because that wasn't enough. So they're in two blocks. The vines are not especially old. Um, they're 30 years old at the moment. Um, this is a domain that I went and visited uh, uh, in August, and actually I really like the wines. It's now Pierre-Emmanuel uh, Jelin, who um, is making the wines. Um, and uh, I was pretty impressed. Um, there's nothing sort of rocket science uh, uh, about them um, uh, going on, but um, they are certified organic now, 2019. They had a new winery from 2011, which I think really made a difference because they were making the wines in a little sort of compact place up in the village of Fissin, where they come from. Um, and to have this new setup, they got it in 2011, so they were able to make the, the 2012 there. And it was about that uh, uh, time when Pierre Emmanuel started to take over from, from his father. Um, at the period we're talking about, 2012, they didn't use any whole bunches. Since then, they use about a third for all, all the cuvées. Um, so that's a little bit of a change, and, and lots of people are doing this. Uh, so it's 20%, uh, um, sorry, 20 months of barrel aging. 50% uh, for um, of new barrel for the Grand Cru. Um, and they were very informative. Uh, I also checked on their website. They started picking on the 24th of September, which is about when the harvest began in 2012 in the Côte de Nuit, 10 days earlier in the Côte de Beaune. Uh, I haven't talked about the vintage so far. It was a year that began in what is beginning to be reasonably typical um, terms these days, i.e. it was a very mild winter until in fact there was one real burst of cold in the middle of February, which is very necessary, kill off the bugs. But otherwise, it was a typical cold and not that wet winter, such as we're often experiencing. And then again, as we're frequently experiencing, absolutely beautiful March that uh, makes you feel as though it's summertime and you're having lunch outdoors and your shirt sleeves and all the rest of it. And as is also quite typical these days, um, May and June were damp and dull and unexciting. And that actually continued well into July and people were getting quite worried. Uh, it then really uh, heated up July and August. Big problems in the Côte de Beaune with repeated hailstorms, which they didn't get at all in the Côte de Nuit. Um, so on the whole, it is a better Côte de Nuit vintage than Côte de Beaune. The harvest weather was very good in the Côte de Beaune uh, through in the sort of end of the second through the third week in September. And it got a little bit dodgier um, by uh, this week, beginning Monday the 24th of September. There was more rain, it was quite blustery, um, but by that time the grapes had ripened, their skins were thick enough, there was no danger of rock getting in the way, uh, everything was gonna be safe, it was just slightly less enjoyable conditions for people to do the harvest in. So, for some reason, 2012 has always been a bit under the radar. Maybe the stories of hail and the Cote de Bone uh, turned people off it, but uh, my experience has been very good. But it's also one of those vintages that people don't bring out very much, and so we've slightly lost sight of it uh, since the, the early days. 
Um, but I remember thinking that the Cote de Nuit wines had a lot of promise. I hadn't really been drinking this vintage um, at all myself. So tonight will be a nice little bit of discovery for us and see if at eight years old, it's beginning to show. But it doesn't, it has sort of intellectually a good reputation, but it doesn't have a super sexy re reputation, which meant that we were actually able to go out and find the wines. So in those days, as I say, there was no um, uh, whole bunch and they were a little bit fierce than they would be now on the punching down. So nowadays punching down is, is sort of going out of fashion, but then people would, would do it. Um, you know, uh, um, they used to do it at least a couple of times a day. Um, so let's uh, give myself the first wine. The color is now actually just moving on from its sort of pristine, cheerful uh, red purple. It's still red, but it's not yet gone to brick red, but you can see that it's beginning to mature. Quite um, deep red fruit, it's quite up, actually quite a savory nose here. Um, and also on the palate, it's not one of the really exuberant sweet, rich fruits. I've just been tasting lots of 2019s for that, 2018s. And we are getting a sweeter style of Pinot fruit nowadays in these most recent vintages. So we're going back to a slightly more classical time. It's a very structured wine. It is not hiding anything. Uh, it's got uh, enough acidity. Um, it doesn't have massive tannins. Uh, it's on the young side, but not stupidly unready to drink. Um, it's a nice opening for the bears, but I'm not seeing the majesty of a really top of the line Grand Cru, which is how we tend to think of, of Clos de Bears. So decent wine, promising. I suspect that the domain has now made some quite reasonable strides since then. Um, and uh, prices remain very reasonable. So it might be something to go out and have a look at uh, some of the Fissin wines like the Clos Napoleon, Napoleon and the uh, and there are other less expensive wines first and then, then build up to this. Good. Um, so that's wine number one. Through my samples, and we've got an old friend who we've had several of his wines. I like them a lot. I like him and his family a lot. So when I go this year to taste, it might be the last vintage I will taste with some Bruno and his uh, sidekick, I shouldn't call him sidekick, but his sort of winemaker and technical man, Philippe Brun. Philippe certainly is retiring pretty soon and how long Bruno stays at the helm or whether his sons Edouard and Arthur will uh, uh, manage to um, push him out of the way or at least join him. They certainly already joined him, but, but where the balance of power in, in how this domain goes uh, remains to be seen. I mean, I've tasted normally with Bruno the last couple of years but with uh, Edouard or Arthur sometimes uh, popping in and uh, you, know, you, you, you can see that the new uh, generation is going to want to uh, stamp its own uh, imprimatur, is the expression. Um, now, um, we're in old vine territory here. Um, 1912 for the most part, two thirds of dates from 1912 and one third dates from 1972. Um, and interesting to note that other people have also got vineyards from 1912. So obviously everybody went out en masse. Let me uh, clear uh, my drawings. Um, I'm not deliberately moving from stars to hearts, but uh, I remember in 
past sessions that the hearts do show up more clearly. Um, dark around. I've got a heavily scribbled on uh, version of this map uh, myself. Um, so which I then can check exactly where each parcel is because it's quite complicated to be able to see. And here we have uh, the main Bruno Claire um, parcel. So he has, I also need my crib sheet, which has got the exact sizes on. I should be able to remember all these things. I can't always. 0.98, so he's got very nearly a hectare. Uh, and that's not a full hectare's worth. Um, so I think there must be, uh, there must be another plot as well uh, beyond that. But uh, that's certainly his main plot. So it goes most of the way down, not quite to the bottom. Um, this is uh, probably the top man in the top man, top wine in the Bruno Claire cellar. He makes pretty smart Bon Mar. He's got his lovely Marcinets too. Um, but this is, is, is probably the exceptional wine, which I really, really enjoy. So uh, if I'm gonna compare in the color here, it is not much difference in color. It's slightly more vibrant red, fractionally more useful, but it is also beginning to go a little bit towards the brick red at the edge, but, but it's not that far yet. So, so still short of full uh, maturity. The nose is, is definitely more, uh, the more exotic of the two. Now this won't have got um, uh, a whole bunches in, uh, but nonetheless, it's got uh, sort of raspberry and, and, and sweet strawberry aromatics in it. Hmm. I'm thinking they might have the on the block next door as well, but I'm not absolutely certain of that. Um, I think it's probably both of them. Incidentally, for the full amount of Champagne de Bays, we do go slightly off, certainly at the left end, probably not at the right end. So, um, the block you can see, the, the oddly shaped block at the left is actually much bigger than that in, in real life. So this is a sweeter and smoother and more sensual uh, Clé de Bears entirely. Um, we haven't yet talked uh, about the concept of exactly what Clé de Bears should give us. I think maybe we'll do that in uh, increments as we go through tasting the different wines. Um, quite a lot of new oak here, majority new oak, I don't think uh, uh, 100%. Bruno Claire is one of those uh, people who has a nice little website and you get all excited and then it says under construction, come back later. Uh, so uh, when I haven't got myself the exact detail, um, then uh, then I can't, don't always know the age of the vines, but I do know from uh, my visits to the domain that these are the ancient 1912 and 1972 vines done together. Bruno is one of those people who is sometimes asked to do super cuvées out of the oldest vines or a special pot of his Bon Mar, but uh, he's nicely old fashioned and has resisted doing that. Uh, well, we've got two other people uh, in tonight's lineup who uh, have done uh, separate plots. Um, 
but we've got we've got the regular rather than the well, the supposedly super sexy plot uh, in those cases. I don't know if those who've got the wines would agree, but I think there is a degree of sophistication that we can find in this Bruno Claire wine that we didn't find in the uh, Pierre Jalin wine. I'll just go back and retaste that. Mm. Now, I, uh, because I don't have um, um, Ronan uh, at work for me uh, uh, tonight, uh, it's a fraction more difficult for me to see the chat, but I can in questions and answers. Don't have any questions so far, but uh, uh, do keep them coming um, and do join in. Always reassuring to me to know that the things are happening off screen and I'm not just talking into my computer. Great. Uh, that's where I'm, I'm following actually the, the chat if you'd like me to uh, to see some of the comments. Yes, if, if there's a question, then then, then do leap in. There's a question about uh, the Claire plot is the one more to the right. Uh, they believe that the one on the left is uh, Zado. Is that correct? Uh, right. Uh, I that could be possible if you if someone has got a little map with, with all of them up to date, because certainly Jado and Claire, uh, the, what was the original um, domain Claire Dow did get broken up. So, so, and the one on the right of the two I've put the hearts into, um, uh, this, this one here is big enough to, to be the right size and that one there is a bit smaller. Uh, so yes, that, that could well be the case. So thank you, Heiko Janssen for that. Good. Um, Oh, that's doing its job very nicely. This should be something um, uh, sensual about um, Clodagh Bears. What I don't really like is this uh, wretched, tedious uh, description of Chambertin as uh, le roi des vins, le vin des rois, so the king of wines and the wine of kings, and indeed the insistence on masculinity and femininity. I don't think Chambertin is a particularly masculine wine if we have to use those sorts of descriptors. Uh, in fact, the, the phrase I'm starting to use now is that if it is a masculine wine, then it's in touch with its feminine side. Um, and it is much more graceful in modern winemaking times than it would have been for much of the 20th century when it was made to be slightly clunking and, and heavyweight. Um, uh, there's a quote from, uh, uh, this would have been late 19th, early 20th century. And I'm not going to get it right because I'm doing it from my head. Uh, a quote from um, uh, Saintsbury, George Saintsbury, uh, that he, was, he wasn't all that keen. Uh, no, I've actually, uh, I found it. Um, uh, his comment on uh, Chambertin was, it may have been noted that I do not mention any of this famous wine as in my possession. The fact is, it has never been a favorite of mine. Maybe blasphemous to call it coarse, but it seems to me that it does something grow to coarseness compared to the above, the above being um, Richebourg. Um, so that was one critic who didn't really like it. Matt Kramer was much more excited about it. He said, Chambertin connotes capillary bursting pleasure. It's a lovely turn of phrase there. Uh, and most other people have rated Chambertin right at the top. Um, but 
typically people describe Teddy Bears as sort of the consort, the queen consort of Shambhata. Uh, so implying it's slightly more feminine, but if we move away from that, we can say that it is slightly less structured and slightly more gracefulness of fruit. It often comes around a little bit earlier. And in fact, the two wines we've had so far would support that. They have both been not too far away from, from drinkability. Um, so yeah, um, that's the starting point. I've got more to say a little bit later on as, as we come to other people's um, uh, examples. Be tempting also to, to, to quote Evelyn Moore, but that is much more about his, uh, his literary skills. It doesn't really lead us into any understanding of Claude Bez specifically, just a view on truly great um, uh, red burgundy. Right, I will um, show on the map where the next uh, holding is now. In fact, this is uh, Feverly, and they have got more than one slice. Uh, we've got a slice here, um, planted in 1966, and then we've got this lot that comes down here and then widens out slightly there. Now, the, since 2009, they started to make uh, a super cuvée called Les Ouvres Rodin from this block that's on the left, the smaller one of the two, from vines planted in 1966. Um, which in a way is, is sort of um, uh, slightly surprising. They clearly rate that block better because they've actually got some older vines uh, in the bit on the right. Um, with all these dates, I've, I've got a few crib sheets, so it's why my face might disappear from time to time. But uh, the rest of it is planted in a mix of 1949, 1959, 55 and 1983. Um, so uh, clearly the bit on the left is either they think is naturally a better site or possibly it's got better plant material, which also uh, counts a lot. So as always, I'm in two minds when people make a super cuvee. It is true when tasting in the cellar, the very young wines, um, it has clearly been a register over and above the uh, uh, ouvre uh, um, uh, Rodin. Um, I'm just searching for it. I've lost, lost my favourite one. But at, last year when I went to taste 2018, they said, shan't let you taste that anymore. We've stopped tasting it because what happens is that all you, all you wretched journalist people, uh, you taste the regular Clos Bears and uh, you give it a nice score. And then you taste the Ouvre Rodin and you give it a higher score and or you mark down the first Clos Bears to make more of a difference. So we don't want you to see it. But... If you feel like that, you probably shouldn't be offering the two uh, apart anyway. And I don't think they're going to be offering the Ouvre Rodin in the marketplace in quite the same way as they did initially. But it is the snag whenever you do an ultra super cuvee, you risk making it a little bit difficult to get the, the screen time for your regular bottling. So uh, that's why I'm not always a fan of these things. I'm certainly not a fan if it Super cuvee isn't better than the ordinary cuvee, and if by taking it out, you are weakening the, the regular cuvee. But in this case, and in the case of Pierre Du Rocher's uh, 1923 uh, Lavo Saint-Jacques, I don't think it is true. One or two other cases, I can't really see enough of the difference to justify it. Right, I have now placed in my glass 
see there is a question on the difference between Schomburg soda bears. I've started to answer that and we will work on that as we go through the piece. We will work steadily on that rather than um, trying to come up with it midway through. So Foveli, um, you'll remember the story. Um, I actually wanted to show, um, I sent Ronan who hasn't been able to uh, join us properly online, um, but I did uh, send him, if I can get it up, I will get it up, but I am by no means uh, convinced that I will be able to find it. Um, no, gonna be too difficult. I hope to find a picture for you of um, the amazing um, winery that they have built that looks a little bit like a um, cathedral and it looks a little bit like a terminus railway station. Uh, I don't know how religious the favourites are but they certainly uh, have a strong religion in, in railway engines because they do lots of the engineering involved in trains. Um, so they did have that little bit in mind when they redeveloped this new winery which wasn't ready when they made the um, uh, 2012 that we've got uh, in front of us. But since then, they have um, moved there. But they also, for a little bit, after they took on Domaine uh, Dupont Tisserando, uh, whose buildings were not in good condition, but they were still made some wine there the first year. And they really liked how the wines came out, despite the fact that the buildings were a bit grubby. And they stopped and they thought about it. And they thought maybe there is a colony of yeast in the um, uh, all the sort of the penicillin mold which surrounds, um, infests many a winery. And they thought maybe that makes a difference. And so they took, they scraped the walls down a little bit and they took that with them into the new winery and hoped that they would maybe get some effect of that. When I go and see them next month, I will, I will find out if they think, think that that really worked for them. So I'm sure all of you are familiar with the Favely story, but uh, much as we loved Francois Favely, the wines made in his period were felt to be too dry and too tough, and they took really an infinity of time to come around. Uh, arrives uh, his son Erwan Favely in 2005, uh, and uh, Erwan also then employs a new technical director, Jérôme Flus, from 2007. 2007 is thought to be really the first new, vin new style vintage. Uh, much, much more supple wines, which from about 2011, they decided maybe they'd let the pendulum swing a little bit too far. And so they have brought the, uh, things back again a little bit um, so that they have begun to rebuild in a little bit more structure. Now, when I'm smelling this wine, this is quite backward. This is, um, uh, the color is probably a little bit more youthful than Bruno Claire, not massively, but a little bit more youthful. Um, and the nose is telling me, uh, you know, stand back, uh, we're not ready to talk to you. Uh, I can just um, remind you as we, when I change screens, uh, we lost this, but I will just um, remind you where we're talking about. It's this bit here. As you can see, almost everybody is top to bottom, apart from a few things uh, missing. And um, also, uh, just to uh, be clear, is that uh, we stop, no, we don't. Uh, um, if it comes down something like this, it goes along there, that's the north border. So those little blocks just above that line are Premier Cru Bel Air, 
and the rest of it is um, is shown with Anglade Bears down as far as the road here. So, and as I mentioned, it starts there. So, Oof, this is a massive great wine. I'm going to suggest that stylistically it's almost more of a Chambertin than a Clodagh Bears, but they don't have Chambertin, so we can't actually do that comparison. Um, hmm. But it's not hugely aggressively dry at the finish. It's more that the overall power of the wine, really intense red fruit going on here, nothing black about this. And in fact, the Chambertin family shouldn't be black fruit. They maybe had that reputation uh, for two reasons. One, because Chevrolet Chambertin is uh, associated with being a very um, uh, sort of powerful appellation. And secondarily, the school in the maybe late 80s, but certainly in the 90s, there was a little bit of a school of Chevrolet Chambertin of people who were picking later, using more new oak, extracting more. And there was a little school of black winemaking, if you like. Uh, in, in Gervais Chambertin. But as always with these things, while it is a school, it's not the only way of looking at it. So I've given you the dates of Fleverley, I've shown you where uh, Fleverley is. Uh, we've talked about the wine a little bit. I don't know if those who've got the wine, anybody would care to comment? Terry, by the way, have you been able to prepare the poll with the six wines for us to look at later? I will uh, prepare that now. Uh, Great, thank you. The bouquets aren't absolutely singing tonight, but I think that's just a question of uh, eight-year-old Grand Cru. It's in between, in between its two passages. Uh, there's a, a lot of wine in that, in that Fevely. Where should we go next? I think Drew La Rose is calling us. Uh, sound effects. I will give you that my bowl and bring out another glass. So as far as I know, these drawers are not related to uh, the bone uh, drawers. Uh, the domain originates with the La Rose family, in fact. Um, but um, it started in 1850, but when an, uh, a descendant much later on married a, um, a, a daughter, uh, married a, uh, a Monsieur uh, Drouin from Chambord Musigny. They got lots of Chambord vineyards, uh, including a healthy uh, holding of Bonnemar, for example. Um, but uh, from the Chevrolet side, the La Rose side, uh, they've got um, plenty of the Bears. So, in fact, uh, I didn't mention uh, Fevely in total have 1.29 hectares and Drouin Rose have 1.54 hectares. This is, I just said they weren't particularly aromatic, uh, but I'm actually, in my glass, this is the most aromatic wine so far. Honestly, it feels it's a little bit like an awkward teenager. Uh, but um, I haven't been in my mouth yet. Uh, colour, frankly, there has been no significant colour variation between any of the wines. 
so far. Um, oh, I just spotted, I, I've missed uh, another uh, favorably plot. I should have added in this one as well as another little favorably plot. Um, but let us uh, tell you where Durin La Rose is. And their main plot is a big one here, all the way down. Uh, they've also got this little one here. They may even have two of these, um, but they certainly have, have that one. Uh, and I think that that more or less covers them. Um, so that's a pretty big holding and basically goes top to bottom, all the way down. Um, and as I mentioned before, even though the officially the geology changes, nobody has suggested to me that there is a clear difference between uh, upslope and downslope uh, thus, thus far. So um, this uh, nowadays, this is one of the many domains which has recently started doing some whole bunch, but not back in the time of 2012. Um, and in fact, I think it probably Nicola, the uh, Nicola and um, uh, Caroline, the son and daughter, are in, in charge now, but I think it's probably more their father, Philippe, making the wine back in 2012. Um, certainly, I've seen, wasn't quite so sure about 2018s, but I wasn't sure if it was the samples rather than the wine itself. But apart from that, in the last three or four years, this is a domain which I think has really, really come up in the world from being decent solid source to something that's quite special. I remember sort of 15, 16, 17, so I thought were really, really good. Haven't tasted 19s yet. If it is a, a more awkward teenager, that's really only on the palate. It's got slightly higher acidity than any of the wines we've had before something which never worries me in red burgundy. I tend to like the acidic years and matches so well um, what uh, um, Pinot Noir as a grape is about, that it just requires a bit of time. A few tannins at the back. Uh, pretty good density of fruit all the way through. I'm going to say that I think the Favoli has got more density of fruit, um, but this has got better aromatics. Um, not the same as that sensual quality that uh, was so absolutely delicious with um, the Bruno Claire wine. But um, Mark's asked about pricing of Duran La Rose. My understanding, I believe they do. They certainly don't really have a secondary market uh, pricing. I don't think they're given away, but I don't think, uh, and I think they've gone up from sort of prior to uh, Nicola and Caroline taking over, but I think they're, I think they're still very fairly priced. And they tend to have quite decent sized holdings, which always helps in how people price things. No, I just, just retasted the favorite, so I should go back and I didn't number my glasses. little bit more austerity um, at the finish there. We have two left and I'm just wondering if I'm not going to change the order. Uh, I have a horrible feeling that it might just have been snobbery that um, put me in this order. I, ah, this is interesting. 
you will know that um, most of the recent times I've been giving you what the alcohol percentages are on each of them. Um, and you will also know that it is far from guaranteed that people are completely truthful. They have a half degree tolerance anyway. Just running through them, Jeannin is 13.5. Bruno Claire is um, straight 13. Fauvelet, 13.5. Jeannin Rose, 12.5, which might be that extra little bit of austerity. Um, and it may also be an honesty. 12.5 is what we made and we didn't chaptalize it. Um, then Damois normally is the highest octane, particularly in recent hot vintages, but he's marked his as 13 and uh, Rousseau's marked as 13.5. So on that basis, we will take them at their words. Um, Barrent, I, I suggested that uh, it was probably from 2015 that Joanna Rose really stepped up. Take their words, and we will keep the order of wines, which is on the um, on the crib sheet, on the tasting sheet, and we will do Demois next. Now, this is a really important domain in in many ways. It was I used to talk about the street of shame, um, which was as you come up from. Uh, it used to be a lovely little restaurant on the main drag by the traffic lights uh, called the Hotel des Vendangeurs, I think. And I would go for one dish in particular. They had a dish of braised pig's ears and snails. And they braised the pig's ears, which is basically cartilage, so that they were really, uh, I shall say crisp, other menus would say crispy, um, but they were really crisp and crunchy. And then you had the sort of slightly slimy snails alongside and the difference in texture was really good fun. And also there was lots of garlic, which is nice. And nobody else would think of doing that dish. Anyway, the restaurant doesn't exist anymore, sadly. Um, but if you go up that street and head up into the real heartland of Chevrolet Chambertin, you have um, three domains. First of all, um, uh, Camus, who I think is on both sides of the roads, particularly the left, then Demois on the right, then Rivoso on the left. And between them, they have got an amazing amount of the Grand Cru's of um, Chevrolet Chambertin, and it's a Bougeot, he's one of them too. Um, and there was a period when the wines of all three were to my way of thinking, seriously below par. And the first to pull out of that was Damois when this Pierre Damois took over from his uncle, in, I think 1991, thereabouts, um, and um, has, has turned things around, but in a very, very idiosyncratic way. And he's a fascinating, uh, very likable, but quite complex character, uh, Pierre. Uh, himself, he's pretty much a teetotaler. Uh, he's vegetarian. And I had a great discussion with him on the last visit because he was just using, um, uh, thanks Terry, but hold it back for now and we'll, we'll put it up later. Um, and um, he said that even though I'm vegetarian, I began just trying to use um, therefore vegetable composts and I realized it wasn't enough, it wasn't giving enough nutrition. So he now uses also some chicken uh, compost, some horse and some beef, uh, cow, cattle compost. Uh, each of which brings something slightly different into what's necessary for the holistic sort of complete vineyard experience. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll put to one side my, my vegetarian, possibly near vegan um, feelings and, uh, and, and go with what's going to be best for my, for my vineyard. Um, now, they have a huge amount. Let us clear away what we've got at the moment. 
And uh, they've got three main blocks of it. Uh, they've got this one, which I will make, make bigger again. So they've got that block there, zoom. They have got um, all this big block over here, zoom. And that's one you have seen a little stone building, a little cabin with Champagne uh, Claude de Bez on the side. And that's, that's just this little thing down here. And the third bit is here in the middle. Um, and uh, he now also makes a Vievin uh, cuvee. Um, though not um, only with the uh, oldest vines, but uh, uh, 1920 of the oldest vines. And uh, he also has vines from 1947, 1985. So it, everything he makes is, um, uh, is properly old vine. He's got over five hectares, 5.36, last time I looked. Um, and that's a really large amount of wine to, for one person to put in bottle, particularly if it's disproportionate to what, uh, everything else they have. Of course, Domaine de la Romani Conti are happy to bottle up everything they've got from vineyards in, in blocks of five hectares and more. But then that's typical of their holdings of uh, uh, Grands Echisseaux, Latache, um, Richbourg's a bit less, I think. But I mean, broadly speaking, it's consistent across the range, which means that it works in the marketplace. But if Pierre Demois tried to sell all that, uh, that could be a struggle. So he'd rather just make the bits that he wants. And then he uh, exchanges a number of grapes with people who've got minor appellations, because what he wants to have in his range are um, appellations all the way through Bourgogne, Marseille, Fissin, blah, 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 Chevrolet Village. He's got a nice little monopoly called Claude Termizot. And then up to the Grand Cruz, he has a bit of Chambotin and he has quite a good holding of Chapelle Chambotin. So he sells some grapes and he swaps some grapes. Um, and for most people, he insists on setting the picking date, which can be traumatic because he likes to pick two or three weeks after everybody else. Um, so um, that is uh, something that people have to come to terms with. I do know a couple of people who are allowed to make the calls themselves as to when they pick. But you know, it's it can be a bit of a fight on their hands uh, to uh, make sure they can do that. Uh, otherwise, you can sometimes see it in a range of wines where Negociant uh, or Gros, who does some Negociant cuvées, suddenly pops up with their Claire de Bears and it tastes very, very different in style from the other uh, wines. It's because it's been picked a couple of weeks later. So in 2018, uh, Pierre had some cuvées which were 15 and a half degrees and I tasted them and thought, well, that's fine, it works because the way he runs his vineyard, that's what his intention was in the first place, to pick late when he is totally happy with the flavours. And um, as a result, he's got very high alcohols, but he's run his vineyards that way. And the wines, it's a different balance, but they don't actually taste unbalanced. Whereas somebody who is trying to make wines at 13 and has accidentally let something slip and has ended up with 15 plus because he lost sight of his vineyard and it got away from him, then it's going to be ugly. Now, this 2012 from Pierre, labeled, as I say, at 13, maybe it was 13 back then in the context of that vintage. Maybe the wine is actually going to prove to be taste as if it's a little bit more than that. So 
So um, this version, he's sort of 80% new, 70, 80% new wood. Uh, he does also have um, a VAV version, which is 100% new wood, but that's not, that's not here. So now we have a totally different color. This is much the deepest and darkest color of all the wines that we've had so far. And it's pretty powerful, rich, ripe um, style of wine. So clearly grapes are ripe, um, much darker fruit here. I don't pick up any specific heat, so I can't tell alone. I'm suspecting it's gonna be a bit higher in alcohol than the others, but I can't tell that straight away. You can see on the chat, Alistair's tasting note. I don't know if Paul's listening in, but that's probably not your wine, Paul, uh, as you tend to prefer the, uh, the fresher and more um, wines with great attention. But in fairness, this does have tension at the back. There's enough acidity there, and it's not added acidity. It's naturally in the grapes. It balances it. This doesn't finish hot and sloppy at all. I think that's a, that's a pretty exciting wine. Hmm. So I'm suspecting there aren't too many people who've got the wine uh, tonight because we're not having a lot of other comments from people with wines, but I hope uh, that some of you uh, do have them and we'll join in the voting in due course. But we have one more to bring you. Maybe purely snobbery that I've left it to the end. Um, Armand Rousseau, 1.42 hectares. Clear my drawings, show you where it is. So actually, um, it's, it's reasonably um, recent for, for Rousseau. The first bit they got um, was here, and they got that bit in um, uh, 1961, so much later than their Chambertin and a bit later than the Clos Saint-Jacques. The second uh, small plot they got in 1989, and is over here. And then um, the rest of it came in 1992, and is pretty significant, and is part of what was Domaine Marion, uh, Priore Rock, who would be 131, the next would be uh, next to the right. That would be Marion. And in fact, what we had from Domaine Gelin was also from the Marion family originally. Um, so I don't actually have the age of uh, the vines here, but from memory, I think they are reasonably old vines. Um, just checking a couple of notes down here, but it doesn't look as though, nope. A comment that Eric has made to me and comments I've seen elsewhere make it sound that he and Charles, his father, Charles, I should say, slightly preferred the Clos de Bez to the Chambertin. My guess, and I'm not sure about this, is that they were more responding to how the questions were addressed to them and they were sensing that people were just going into a wild ecstasy about the Chambertin, and they wanted to give the Clos de Bears sort of equal billing. Um, but when I taste there at the um, harvest time, or not at the harvest time, sorry, at the barrel tasting a year or so later, I'm divided, but I would say that three times out of four or, or, or four out of six, I'm going to fractionally prefer the Chambertin at the uh, barrel tasting, but not a lot in it. Um, 
However, when I've taste, tended to taste the wine side by side, much more mature, I found that the Chambertin has kicked on further and developed greater depth and weight. And so probably I've ended up more often as being a, um, uh, a Chambertin person over Clos de Bez. But it's when you make comments like that, that Eric's going to come back at you and sort of sing the praises of the Clos de Bez. So here we have it. 100% um, Mm. 100% new wood on this. And that's something I, it isn't just that they want all new wood for Champotin, Clos de Bears, and for most of the um, Clos Saint-Jacques. It's actually that uh, in the other wines, the other Grand Cru's at any rate, and top Premier Cru's, are entirely in one-year-old wine, perhaps not the village, but everything else is in one-year-old barrels. So what they want is a balance so that half the crop goes into their top wines as brand new wood, and they can use all those barrels the following year for the rest of their wines. So that plays a little bit into exactly how they choose it. So, um, my friend uh, James just wants to have a, um, a quick rerun of the forgotten years, 2011 to 2014. I think I'll just continue talking about uh, um, Rousseau and then maybe come back to that. Now, Rousseau is not noted for dark colored wines, but I'm thinking that this is perhaps the second darkest, clearly not as dark as, um, as uh, no, I'm changing my mind. What I'm thinking to myself is I haven't yet poured myself the, um, the Rousseau wine. So I was looking once again at, yeah, no, it's still pretty good color. It's certainly the second most useful color, clearly not as dark in color as the Dunois. And with an elegance of bouquet in the way that only they have. I mean, what is it that they do? I don't know. It, it's, it's a touch that they have. Their methods are not spectacularly different from anybody else's. They run their vineyards pretty well, but they're not doing any of the sort of modern trendy things of raising the canopy and the rest of it. I saw Eric while tasting in 2018s with, uh, um, with his daughter, but I saw Eric and he had a huge smile on his face. And I said, hey, Eric, great to see you. Why are you so happy? He said, it's the first vintage ever that we haven't had to chapterize a single cuvee. And I saw him uh, a year later and he said, 2019, two in a row. So, you know, if you, uh, if the, the uber geeks amongst us are trying to find the way to make absolutely the greatest wine of all, there's nothing that Rousseau's doing that you could follow as being the recipe to get there. But it doesn't matter because the wine is there in the glass and it's utterly brilliant. Mm. Uh, just where I can see a comment here um, from one of our attendees that on a recent mm. visit, uh, Eric Rousseau yeah. told him that uh, Chambertin doesn't, mm. does probably better in hotter years, but, uh, but he prefers Claude de Bez in the cooler in years. The cooler so years. my question yeah. might be that, you know, maybe the, the effect of Comte de Grisard or... It could well be that. It could well be that the, the little bit of extra heat. My guess is that Claude de Bez doesn't change between the hotter and the cooler years, but that Chambertin has the chance just to bring out the extra in the slightly warm years. Um, but when I see Eric next, then, then that's a point that I'll, um, I'll put to him and, uh, and develop that idea further. Yeah, thank you. 
Um, James is, uh, just did mention 11, 12, 13, 14, and we do forget these years too much. 11 was like 2007 insofar as it was a very early year, a light year, so brilliant spring, and then a pretty moderate summer, slightly um, better weather than in seven, so the grape skins got a little bit thicker, and so there's a tiny bit more density in the wine. But seven years on from 2004, it was a little bit of a ladybird year, and you do get some of those green pyrazine flavours, whether caused by ladybirds or not, can appear in your 2011s. 12, I like. It's dense and it's solid. Um, and uh, there's plenty of wine here. Possibly misses out on the really scintillating additional char character uh, that, that brings um, uh, you know, the, the, the really major kudos. 13 was a much later year, uh, October harvest, even well into October. Uh, some wines are a little bit lean and austere, but at the top end, the Grand Cru's, I think are uh, uh, an unsung secret. Uh, they're not going to be, you know, if you, if you like your wines to be rich and slightly higher in alcohol and really powerful, they're not going to do that job. But there is a feeling of real class about them um, in this fractionally more austere style. So I think there are lots of 13s which will surprise us in an upwards way. And 14 is nearly a really good vintage, but it was the year of the wretched um, Japanese fruit fly, the Drosophila Suzuki, which started uh, damaging the grapes. They began to rot a little bit and some people panicked and picked too early. So you get some slightly green, slightly angular 14s. The people who didn't suffer from that left their grapes on the vines long enough. They're really very good. But of those 11 through 14, I think 12 is probably going to be the, the best red wine vintage, apart from a few cuvées in 2013, which are going to surprise us. Wonderful. Well, now is the time to ask any more questions, um, if you have them. Uh, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. Um, and uh, also, we will, I'll ask Terry um, to put the... Here he's on it. Um, I don't know if you can tweak that, Terry, so that the host and panelists can vote, but if you can't, uh, don't worry about it. Um, we'll, we'll leave it like that. I feel we're not going to have a, a vast number of people voting, but even if you want to vote from the descriptions, please choose your two favourites, and I will say which my two are uh, later on, um, and, uh, and we'll, we will take it from there. So, countdown, five... Four, three, two, one. Fire away. Take it off the screen, Terry, and give us the answers. Right. Okay. So we have uh, Piaget didn't score tonight, and I think that's fair. Uh, the wine is nice, but it doesn't quite feel uh, up to standard with the rest. Then we have some votes for Favely and Drain La Rose. Uh, I was certainly thinking of putting the Favely into my into my top two, and I like the Joanna Rose as well. And then we have two joint seconds, Bruno Claire and Demois. Um, both of those were going to be amongst my favourites. I wasn't going to put Rousseau in because I knew he's going to get lots of votes anyway. It is a brilliant wine, no question about it. Um, but uh, there were four out of the six which I wanted to vote for. Um, Demois surprised me on the upside. Favely, I liked a lot. Um, yeah, who am I going to choose? I think I'm going to go with Damois and Rousseau. But if we if we discount Rousseau because 
because he's got the votes already. I'll go with Benoit and Fidley. Brilliant. I'm glad that these samples are absolutely up to snuff tonight. I thought they were. Um, I know that we had a couple that weren't quite right in the Romane Saint-Vivant evening, and that's a bummer. Um, uh, but um, yeah, so my next session will be, um, I don't have the date in front of me. I, uh, I ought to, or I can get it up quickly enough. I hope my entire computer doesn't come up on uh, screen. Um, it's not that file. Uh, where have I got my file? Uh, I know what the subject matter is. I'm going sort of up country in the Cote de Bone. So we're going to look at two wines each from Montelis, Saint-Romain and Osidures. Those of you who are really keen to find where, where value is and who the exciting people a little bit off the main map are, uh, I think that will be one for you. And that uh, I've gone ahead too far. I think that is going to be um, what are we tonight? We're the 13th of October, so that will be the 27th of October. Then the 4th of November, I suspect, is going to be Bon Mar. Um, and then the programme will continue from there. So uh, I don't know if we have any uh, last questions that anybody would uh, uh, like to ask, um, but otherwise, uh, I shall. I think I've got um, mushroom risotto tonight, which will be nice. I was amused to see that um, uh, Trailer Rose on their website suggests that rabbit in mustard sauce was uh, the right thing to go with their uh, clover bears. And I had rabbit, but not with mustard sauce last night. So thank you all. Um, great to see you. Do keep the ideas coming. Let us know. Let 67 Pound Man or me know if you have particular subjects that you would really like to see. And uh, yeah, see you again. Thank you very much, Jasper. Have a good night. Good night, and uh, apologies to Ronan that uh, he wasn't able to join us. But Harry, it was great to see you again.